Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Hello and welcome to the Podcast Hour. I'm Richard Scott. Each week I hunt out and share some of the best audio stories from around the world and hopefully help you to discover some great new stuff to listen to. Five shows on the menu today, so lots to get through. There's karaoke battles on giant container ships. I heard that in the north of Norway, where when the, the container ships are dried up for repairs and things, that the shipping companies instigated competitive karaoke as a way of stopping the crews from fighting. David Walliams wants to get more kids into classical music. What made Mozart so memorable that we're still talking about him over 200 years after he died? Well, it could be due to the fact that as well as being a musical genius, he was also quite a big weirdo. Then... The show that's just one guy going for a walk and a Parisian podcast telling the French capital's hidden histories. Here, on the quiet street of the Rue Coiffaubin in the 11th arrondissement, five discreet paving stones mark where the guillotine once stood. Finally, US talk show host Conan O'Brien chats to some of the biggest names in showbiz to see if they'll be his friends. And next time you hear something good, please let me know about it. Pods at rnz.co.nz is the email address. And on Twitter, we're at RNZ Podcast Hour. Being stuck on a ship out at sea for months on end, surrounded by a bunch of karaoke enthusiasts. It sounds like it could be a specially designed version of hell. But karaoke's helping fight homesickness and loneliness for crews of the giant container ships that carry around most of the stuff we eat, wear and play with. Access onto these super-sized, heavily automated vessels is tightly controlled, so it's a hidden world we hardly ever get to hear about. But container ship karaoke from the BBC gets us onto one and takes great pleasure in all the noises and sounds you'll encounter there too, including one memorable sequence when the whole 400-metre-long ship turns into one giant musical instrument. Nathaniel Mann's a musician and a member of the English folk band Dead Rat Orchestra. He grew up near a big container port in south-east England. Ever since my folks moved out to Suffolk... I would sit on the banks of the river at Shotley and look out towards the port of Felixstowe. Vast ships would arrive, great cranes the size of dinosaurs, reaching down to grab at the containers before heaping them up in piles. Now I'm finally close up with one of these ships. This collage of colours and rust. And, and logos and text. The Maribo Maersk 
is discharging its cargo of over 18,000 containers. Containers stacked up on the ship, or is that on the dockside ready to go on? No, it's, it, it's on the ship. It looks like a city. As a singer of folk songs, I've collected a few shanties over the years, but I'm also aware they smack of nostalgia. Today's sailors don't sing work songs. They don't need the rhythm to help row a boat or raise a sail. Machines do the hard labor. But then a friend told me about container ship karaoke. So here I was to find out more. Queues of lorries pulling in containers. Marco's voice, there's a, there's a tone of panic in it. Because, you know, the, these things have flown into the air on wires. They almost look like in the theatre when, when somebody's drawn up in the, into, the, into the rafters in a ballet and then straight over the edge of the wall and into the ship. And it's breathtaking, actually, and intimidating and, and slightly scary. The anchor is the size of an elephant. And we've been signed in by the watchman in his orange overalls and he just, as he, as he took my signature, he looked me in the eyes and just said, karaoke. The words got out. <laughs> they know we're here. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, sorry, coming to assist you. So we will be going directly to the bridge. Okay. That's any fading there. inside for less than a minute but we've all, yeah, I'm already completely completely lost and the, the whole thing resonated through you can hear inside you can hear the, yes. the, the containers being loaded yes. the cargo operation is uh, ongoing and that's what you're hearing banging of everything containers the ship this is the brain is So my fingers right now are just I'm having to I'm having to hold them behind my back because there are so many buttons and knobs and levers flashing in a really kind of touch me way. And we've got a 360 degree view around the ship. We are in Gdansk now in Poland and going back back out to far east uh, through Suez Canal. Stig, so you're the captain and can you give us a sense of your itinerary on this current journey? Yeah, um we Go to Malaysia uh, first in TPP, there's Tangyong Pillar Pass, uh, next to Singapore. And then we're going up to China, Shanghai, Beijing. And then we are going to Korea, Pyongyang, and then back to Shanghai and Ningbo to post close to each other. South China next to Hong Kong, and then Tangyongpil Pass and then back to Europe again. That's a 12-week round trip generally. And how long are you in each port for? 18 hours. I grew up um, just opposite Felixstowe on the Shotley Peninsula. 
Yeah, I've been to Victoria. Plenty of times. Yes. <laughs> and, and hearing the sounds from my parents' house, you can hear the containers echoing across the landscape all the time. I mean, it's always filled my mind with poetry and, and the images and, and, the, and the idea that you're bringing probably 90% of the things that's in our homes. Yeah. And so I started to hear stories that um, I, initially I heard that in the north of Norway, where when the, the container ships are dried up for repairs and things, that the, uh, that the shipping companies instigated competitive karaoke as a way of stopping the crews from fighting. Okay. But, but uh, there's, there's a karaoke machine on board. Yeah. And if this breaks down, then a new one is bought. It's a priority to get a new one. Yeah, but it's, it's a priority to that doing something together because when you have a vessel that's 400 meter long, you can walk around without seeing anybody. Some people are out here for five, six months that you have kind of some interactions so you don't lock yourself in your cabin and just miss the family at home. So the Asian crew put up the karaoke bar and then they do their singing and... Like in here, it's, that sounded like the karaoke machine being fired up in the background. Yeah, I think they're ready for you. For, for the battle? No? For the battle. We used to come down here a lot, didn't we? Yeah, me and your mum came down mm, back in the summer, I think. Been a while then. Yeah. I come down here sometimes if I've been somewhere and it's a nice morning or there's something I've seen on the AIS I want to have a look at, I'll come down and have a look. Is that part, part of why you moved out here? No, I didn't realise the house was um, that near to the port, no. But you can hear it from the house. Yeah, you can hear the containers. Two o'clock in the morning, if you go to the loo, you... <laughs> <laughs> and sometimes ships have generators running you can hear that sort of thrumming in the background I mean in a way whatever port you go to I'm sure Rotterdam is the same huge you know a sailor's life is there's no point they can't go anywhere because the ship's leaving again in a few hours you know, there's nowhere to go by the time they get out of the port and into Felixstowe it's time to come back again yeah. and then you're back at sea again um, I heard these stories from Dan about these karaoke competitions in the container ship dry dock. Oh, oh really? Yeah. But then we struggled for, for a year or so to try and get on a, on a container ship to record the karaoke. Yeah. Um, I think they do about six month contracts or something like that. Roll on, roll off's coming in. Take a good look because they're not coming in next month. Oh, because they're. Alright, unless they're getting a green then. Valiente, it's good to meet you. <laughs> so we're here now in the in the crew room with Valiente, who's the cook. We've just been joined by, hello. Hello. I'm Ariel, my position, Ibul Seaman. Was karaoke something you did before you came to the ships? I have one in my house. Already in the Philippines? Yeah. We have karaoke bars in the Philippines. If there's a birthday party, you can rent. No, one. Uh, one system? One system. Yeah, you said the Filipino was the one who invented it. So is there any other music on board apart from karaoke? No? Nobody in the engine room sings? I don't know about the engine room. Uh, no. So I've, I've never sung karaoke? No? Uh, okay. No. 
No. The karaoke machine's been fired up. It's it's a big machine with huge red numbers on the front, which is a bit intimidating. <laughs> and we've got basically what looks like a Bible, an encyclopedia of songs in front of us. Me, I sing most Eagles, uh, Ed Sheeran, different, uh, different songs. Different songs, if you like. Uh, about 100, 170 pages. Yeah, we used to sing without television. You memorize the song from the radio. You play the cassette tape and then you sing along with it. This one is easy because you see the lyrics and everything. You like to sing Faithfully by Journey. Faithfully, okay, I don't know this song, but it sounds, is it an American song? Yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. okay. Yeah, let's put it on. So we've got number 31124, which is, is sat just above Fake Plastic Trees by Radiohead. Um, and Limp Biscuit, George Michael, obviously all the Faith-related songs there. Video of a man rowing a, a canoe down a, a very idyllic video shot from above. And the lyrics Restless hearts sleep alone tonight, sending all my love along the wire. The seed that the road in no place to start a family. Right down the line, it's been you and me. The forward part. Also, a way you go through around the ship in case it's a water ingress. We're in a very, very long, dark corridor of grey metal. So you can see 100 meters, maybe? It's more than. It's, it's like being in the heart of the Death Star or something in Star Wars. We're in the belly of a huge steel beast, and the whole thing is like one big resonant. Everything is making a sound in here, and I've just resisted the urge to hit everything and see what it sounds like. Some of Container Ship Karaoke, presented by Nathaniel Mann and produced by Sarah Jane Hall for BBC Radio 3. And I found that one on the BBC's Between the Ears podcast. His children's books have sold more than 25 million copies in just 10 years. And as well as being a writer, he's an actor, comedian, talent show judge and a long-distance swimmer. So is there anything that David Walliams can't do? Well, now he can add podcaster to his CV as well. Hello. I'm Professor Robert Yawning, and welcome to a very serious and boring classical music podcast. Today, I will be droning on about Mozart one of the most famous composers in history. So make yourself comfortable as I tell you all about his life over the next 126 hours. It's me! Ow! Who are you? David Walliams, children's author, talent show judge and Britain's best-loved TV personality with the surname Walliams. And I'm here to host the Classic FM podcast. So jog on. But I, I thought I was hosting this show. 
Sorry, just fell asleep listening to you there. You make classical music sound boring, but it's actually fun and cool, or peng, as us youths like to say. Now go on, go. We've got a fun podcast to do. Ruffian. Born English. By the way, you suck. Simon Cowell rules. Mm. Yeah, that showed him. Rude. OK, everyone, let's get started with some wild, silly and crazy stories about music. And as this podcast is free, I can 100% assure you that you'll get your money's worth. Let's start with Mozart. <laughs> Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart is one of history's most famous composers. He wrote this. This. And even this. Wait, 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 stop. Mozart didn't write that. Bethany, what did you play that for? Oh, sorry, accident. That was a song off my phone. Well, don't let it happen again, Bethany. Probably the craziest thing about Mozart is that he wrote some of his most famous musical pieces when he was a child. He was only eight when he wrote his first symphony. And in case you didn't know, a symphony is really hard to write as it involves an entire orchestra. I'm 40 (coughs) years old, and I can barely even name three instruments. Trumpet, synthesizer, claritootle? Is it claritootle? So let me tell you the epic, mysterious and very silly story of Mozart. The year is 1756. The place, Austria. Austria, Bethany, not Australia. Sorry, won't happen again. Austria. And a baby is born. (laughs) Named Johannes Christostomus Wolfgangus Theophilus Mozart. Which is an excellent name for a composer or evil wizard. (laughs) As a child, Mozart was obsessed with music probably because it was the 1700s and Minecraft hadn't been invented yet. When Mozart's father wanted to get him out of bed in the morning, he would play a scale on the family piano, but deliberately not play the last note. Young Mozart would be so frustrated by the incomplete scale that he would jump out of bed and rush downstairs to play the final note. Oi, Mozart, get out of bed. We need to go into town and do olden day stuff. Mozart! All right, you've asked for it. I'm going back for a snooze. Lazy Mozart. It's said that when he was 14, Mozart heard a piece of music that was only ever allowed to be performed by the Pope's choir in the Vatican. The teenager had such incredible musical ability, he went home and even though he'd only heard it once, he wrote down the entire piece 
from memory. It's the Vatican Guards! Open this door! Hello, how can I help? We believe you have an illegal copy of Allegri's Miserere somewhere in this house. Yes, I've got one here. Interesting. And uh, how did you obtain this copy of such a top-secret musical score? Well, I, I just remembered it, as then wrote it down. A 14-year-old boy hears a piece of music once and is able to remember it all the way through, and then he writes it down. <laughs> yeah, likely story. Kid, I'm arresting you for music piracy. And look, you've also got lots of illegal copies of music by Mozart. How do you explain that, eh? Well, because I'm Mozart. Really? Yeah. Oh, can I get your autograph? Mozart was a genius, with a mastery of music and a bright future ahead of him. But before he made it to his 36th birthday, Mozart was dead. So I've outlived him. Ha-ha! <laughs> One nil, Williams. And that's the end of the story. Oh, hang on, that's not long enough, is it? OK, I'll, I'll keep going. So Mozart was good at music, but so what? Loads of people are good at music, like Taylor Swift or Katy Perry or my personal favourite, Stormzy. But what made Mozart so memorable that we're still talking about him over 200 years after he died? Well, it could be due to the fact that as well as being a musical genius, he was also quite a big weirdo. Some of David Walliam's marvellous musical podcast from Classic FM. It all began as a bit of a joke. The writer and journalist John Moallam started recording the walks he was taking near his home on a wooded island in the northwestern US. Welcome to the Walking Podcast. I'm John Moallam. And all you'll hear on walking is the sound of his footsteps, his breathing, perhaps a distant hello when he meets someone else out on the trail, and a short ad or two recorded out in the field. Otherwise, no talk. It's slow audio, the anti-podcast, the opposite of some of those crafted, tightly edited, highly produced, heavily scripted shows you'll hear. Then the influential podcast industry commentator Nicholas Qua wrote a review about walking. More listeners discovered it as a result. And people started looking for more meanings in what John was doing. Was it some kind of mindfulness tour? An antidote to the great busyness that seems to engulf us every single day? Or because John's written a lot about nature, was it all some coded environmental message? I live right outside Seattle on an island called Bainbridge Island, which is where my wife grew up. We live very close to a state park, which is an old military base. It was a, you know, had a long history as a, a naval base, and it's, a lot of it's since reverted to woods. So there's a bunch of trails through there, and there's a harbor nearby that used to be a sawmill, and um, there's an old cemetery. There's lots of great places to walk, you know, just in and around my own house, which is why, you know, I've always done that. At one point, I had put a little, like a five-second video on Twitter of water just kind of coming up on a boat ramp, you know, little waves coming up on a boat ramp at a, on a beach near my house. And it was just five seconds of looking at this and listening to the sounds of the beach. And I think I made a joke. I think I even said, you know, this is a trailer from my new walking podcast where you just listen to me walk. And I don't think anyone took it seriously, but people did seem to suggest that it was actually a really good idea. 
and uh, I've been writing a book for the last year and a half or so, and I haven't, you know, you, normally I'm a writer with the New York Times Magazine, and so I just haven't really produced anything or felt like I was contributing anything to the world because I've just been holed up in my office writing a book that still won't be out for another year, right? So I don't know, maybe that had something to do with it, but it just seemed like it would be, you know, a, a fun and sort of depressurizing to throw something out into the universe. And I guess that whole process of, of researching a book by its very nature, it's quite a lonely, solitary process. And I'm, in a funny way, is this kind of creating a bit of a community that you kind of interact with? That's the real irony of it. I mean, I've, to be honest, it's like I've tried, I'm a very analytical person, I guess, and I've tried not to really put too much thought into this because that seemed to ruin the point of it for me. You know, like I, at one point I even found myself like being stressed out about, you know, the walking, like I, I had... Like getting an episode out in time, and you had this yeah, production yeah. I, mean, I had once I had gone off, and I didn't realize that I had I had accidentally must have hit the switch on the recorder, and so it had paused, and so I hadn't actually recorded anything, you know. And I was like, you know, I was just I was angry, right? And it seemed absurd. So, so I'm trying not to, you know, put too much, uh, you know, pressure on it. But but in terms of what you're asking, I think that yeah, it's definitely very funny that you know I live a pretty solitary life. I go for walks during the day as a break from work, but even that is just more being alone. So it 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 hasn't been lost on me that like I've gotten some you know like social media energy <laughs> from you know basically recording myself walking alone has suddenly you know made me have a lot more interactions online. That seemed like a, a bizarre consequence of it all, but it's nice. You wrote a book called Wild Ones, didn't you, about interactions between people, particularly Americans, and nature, and you write a lot about the environment. And, and it doesn't seem like there's any shortage of people who are trying to project a meaning onto what you're doing, but is there an environmental message here as well, or, or is that overreaching? I mean, I guess there is. I mean, I just I happen to live in the woods. So if anything, you know, I used to live in San Francisco for a long time, and one thing I really miss about living in San Francisco was that I could go for a walk in the middle of my workday and there was all of the energy and people of a city around me. And so it's a bit of a, as much as I like walking in the woods, it's also a bit of a drag that, you know, all I've got is kind of nature now. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I mean, I think there's something that maybe it's less about why I'm doing it, but I think maybe that's a, a reason why people are responding to it. I mean, I do find that there's a real allure of you know, for, and I had it too when I lived in a city of people who, you know, are living in cities and spend all day in an office or at a computer. There is a real allure to imagining that you, you know, trade it all in and, you know, go somewhere in the, in the woods. And so I don't know, I guess, and I'm not, I'm not trying to be cynical about it. I think like if that, if I can provide some of that <laughs> solace vicariously, that's pretty, that's pretty cool. I mean, I guess the other thing that occurs to me is when you have so many very highly produced, and I'll use the word busy podcasts out there, you know, things like Radio Lab, and which are great, but they're quite, they're heavily produced, there's lots of sounds going on. This is like slow audio, isn't it? This, you, this can just wash over you. You don't necessarily have to concentrate that much or, or um, engage with it too much. You can, you, it can kind of be whatever you want it to be, I suppose. As a listener. Yeah, I think it's sort of background noise. I mean, in the same way that I like to go for a walk in order to think, you know, sometimes I'll take a break from work and then go on a walk 
with a sort of to-do list of problems to work out in my head. <laughs> I think there's something to just the momentum you get when you're walking that can help you reorient your mind around a problem. And, and so maybe, I don't know, I'd like to think that maybe, you know, just the sound of someone walking might also generate some of that advantage. But, but yeah, I think it is, it, it has been interesting for me to hear people saying that they're listening to it while they work because I don't know, would you listen to that while you're working because it's helping you in some way? Or are we just also accustomed to listening to stuff all the time? And then we find that there are situations where we can't listen to something like Radiolab. And so we need to fill that space with something that's less intrusive. I don't, I don't really know. I kind of kept thinking of like this Rorzak block that people were projecting all these meanings onto and you probably just started it as you know quite an innocent endeavor just you know i'm just going to go for a walk and see what happens yeah what's well, interesting i mean you know it's it is really fun to just make something without really being concerned about how it hits people i mean it's the complete opposite of what i do most of the time you know i mean it, when you're editing a piece of writing all you're thinking about is you know how you're going to put a particular point across to an audience how you're going to bring them along through an argument or a series of emotions or a narrative. And uh, it feels, you know, it's a, I don't know, in some sense it, it, it feels like a nice break from all that. And, uh, I, you know, it's nice to have something like that in my life. You do have adverts though, don't you? You have to, yeah, you have to have <laughs> ads, right? <laughs> Otherwise, is it a real, a real podcast? Muscle is a noir novel in wild collapse. Violence jostles with boredom. Thugs try to cut off an already missing ear, and a mind is possessed by either time travel or insanity. Yeah, I thought that would just be funny, you know, and uh, and and actually, like, you know, I'm not getting rich off it, but it's kind of nice to have a tiny bit of, you know, I took my wife out to dinner the other night on the <laughs> walking podcast ad ad sales so there you go you're riding this podcast wave aren't you oh yeah you know gimlet can have however many hundreds of millions of dollars and we you know got to have uh, hamburgers so it's <laughs> pretty you know it's a, you can only scale up from there because you take a photo of the place that you're reading the ad don't you which is going to typically a bush near a bush or a tree it's, it's kind of funny Muscle Again is out 7th of February in the United Kingdom and is an extremely special offer. American listeners to The Walking Podcast can go to muscle.alantrotter.com backslash walking for an apology that the book is not out in America. It sounds like such an easy and simple idea to go out with recording gear while you're going for a walk and just record the sound of you walking, but it made me laugh. Some of the listeners were saying you were walking too fast that you had an interaction with someone that, you know, kind of freaked them out a bit. So it's, it's clearly not as easy as it sounds. Well, I mean, it's pretty easy for me because I don't really care about any of that stuff. But, uh, but yeah, I was shocked uh, with the first episode. So what happened with the first episode was I, I literally just turned on the recorder and walked out of my house. And as soon as I got to the first, you know, in the network of trails, there was a, a couple walking on the trail ahead of me and they were talking you know, extremely loudly. And, uh, you know, uh, it was the first time I'd done this. And I, don't, I don't know that I have any expertise now that would have helped me deal with the situation better, but I wanted to get away from them. And so I chose to just walk as fast as I could 
so that I would pass them and get them out of the, the microphone range as quickly as possible because I didn't want you to just hear them talking for, you know, the first 10 minutes or something. And the result was that I was just, like, really, you know, hauling ass. And, uh, it, you know, when I put it out, just Twitter was – I was just being bombarded with uh, criticisms of how fast I was walking. I was – yeah, exactly. It was making people tense, and uh, it was sort of a you know a damned if you do, damned if you don't situation. So maybe I should have just explained into the microphone what I was doing, you know, and that maybe would have calmed everyone down. But uh, you know, rookie mistake. I, guess. I saw another lovely suggestion too. Someone was saying that they found that if they listen to your podcast at double speed, they can use it for jogging as well. <laughs> Yeah, that's great. <laughs> that's great. Yeah, maybe you could do it in the half speed. It'd be a crawling show. I don't know. You know, the possibilities are endless. Thanks for coming on the walk. That was nice. John Mualam, the host of The Walking Podcast. And you can find a link to that if you go to rnz.co.nz forward slash podcast hour now. One of my colleagues, Kim, recommended a podcast she's enjoying called Panam. All about Paris, it uncovers the city's hidden histories, exploring all kinds of strange and interesting stuff about the French capital and the people who have lived there. And it's a show with a strong sense of place. You'll often hear the traffic rumbling away in the background, birdsong, mopeds. It really made me want to go there. The show is made by Amber Minogue, who's from England, but who's lived in Paris for the past 18 years. She works there as an English teacher, tour guide, comedian, actor and mother. But her real passion is podcasting. She listens to heaps of them while she's out walking or running. And a pro tip here, they can make doing the vacuuming or washing up a lot more fun too. Here's some of an episode of Panam called La Guillotine. And just a warning for younger listeners... It does contain a few slightly gory details about the process of removing somebody's head from the rest of their body. In Daniel Giraud's book, Guillotine, It's Legend and Law, he starts with a brilliant quote from Victor Hugo. There are those who have no luck. Christopher Columbus cannot attach his name to his discovery. Dr. Guillotin cannot detach his from his invention. Today, we might think of the guillotine as a terrible, barbaric device but originally it was introduced as an enlightened force for good, or at least equality. It was unthinkable in the 18th century to abolish the death penalty completely, but there was a move to make it more fair and just. Until this point, your punishment was based on your rank, status and crime. Nobles were decapitated, most criminals hung, heretics and arsonists were burnt, murderers broken on the wheel, counterfeiters were burnt in oil and the most atrocious death was reserved for those who committed high treason, such as regicide. I'll spare you the details. Feeling at the time towards the death penalty was beginning to shift, though. It was enough to pay with your life. It was no longer necessary to suffer. Already in 1780, Louis XVI had abolished the use of the question. This was a form of torture that all those condemned to death had to face in order to ascertain if they were withholding any last pieces of information or the names of accomplices. Lobbyist for equality in capital punishment Dr Joseph Ignace Guillotin wanted to go further and finally, after much debate, the Assembly voted in 1791 that all those condemned to death would have their heads cut off 
But, as Sanson, the chief executioner, attested, decapitation by axe or sword often resulted in accidents and was thus far from painless. A better solution would need to be found. Dr Antoine Louis, the Secretary of the Academy of Surgery, was charged with setting up a commission to develop a prototype for a beheading machine that could deliver the painless death that Dr Guillotin had promised. A form of guillotine did already exist and was used elsewhere in the world, but nothing like the sophisticated version created by Louis with the help of German engineer jean Toby Schmidt. I'm standing in the rather charming Cour de Rouen, in the 6th arrondissement. It's a picturesque private courtyard adjoining the Cour de Commerce Saint-André, a bustling pedestrian passageway that goes behind the Café Procope, the oldest restaurant in Paris, who's had many a famous person to dine, including Voltaire, Rousseau, Dantin, Napoleon, who even left his hat here, Victor Hugo, Benjamin Franklin, and many, many more. This small passage is full of fascinating stories and things to see, including part of the original 12th century walls of Philip Auguste, as well as buildings that date from the Renaissance. But it is also redolent of the revolution. At number 8, Marat established his publication, L'Ami de Peuple. Dantin also lived here. But it's here, at number 9, Corderoin, that Schmidt, the German engineer, built the original prototype for the guillotine. By 1792... His model was ready for testing. It was set up at the Bisset Hospital. It was first tested on animals and then the corpses of women and children. And although these were successful, when tested on men, it was not as efficient. But after a few adjustments, Dr Guillotin's daughter was ready to go. The newly developed guillotine consisted of two uprights, four and a half metres high, set 37 centimetres apart. Weights were added to the blade to make it more efficient, so in total 40 kilograms would fall just over 2 metres and hit the victim's neck at the fourth vertebra. To ensure accuracy, the soon-to-be-executed would put their heads into the lunette, which was literally a moon-shaped holder. Just on a side note about the creation of the guillotine. Sometimes, if you see old prints, you might notice that the blade is occasionally drawn convex and not sloping or beveled. A popular story would have us believe that it was Louis XVI, on hearing of this new invention, who expressed an interest and asked to see the plans. Supposedly, he noticed the blade and suggested a bevelled one would do the job a lot better. He was right, of course, and nine months later, he would find out how much so. Dr Guillotin famously said, Now, with my machine, I can cut off your head in the twinkle of an eye, and you'll never feel it. He would come to bitterly regret his part in the creation of this device and even these words. The ruthless efficiency of his invention, which did indeed separate head from body in the twinkle of an eye, was so rapid, so easy, that it turned this device into a killing machine, facilitating the terrible events of 1793 and the reign of terror where in Paris alone over 2,000 people lost their heads with only the bare semblance of a trial. No wonder Dr. Guillotin tried in vain to detach himself from his invention. But hold on, did I say painless? From the very beginning, there was speculation as to whether this method was truly painless or not. On July the 17th, 1793, executioner's assistant François Le Gros slapped the cheek of Charlotte Corday. This was the woman who'd assassinated Marat in his bath. But, as the executioner held up her decapitated head for the crowd, people reported seeing unequivocal signs of indignation. In other words, her head had not appreciated this indelicate treatment. 
This and other stories led people to wonder if a decapitated head retained a certain level of consciousness. Some told of rival members from the National Assembly when finding themselves executed together and thus their heads in the same basket were so outraged that even after decapitation one ferociously bit the other. Episode 7 of the Panam podcast, and that's Panam spelled P-A-N-A-M-E, called La Guillotine, presented and produced by Amber Minogue. And you can find a great list of some of Amber's favourite shows if you go to the podcast hour page right now, rnz.co.nz forward slash podcast hour. And thanks for recommending that too, Kim. Next time you hear something good, then don't keep it all to yourself. Do let me know about it. Pods at rnz.co.nz is the email address. Podcasts are becoming the new must-have celebrity accessory. That's according to a recent article in the Financial Times. So as well as David Walliams, big names like Gwyneth Paltrow, Russell Brand, David Tennant and Snoop Dogg have all launched their own shows. The US talk show host Conan O'Brien worked as a comedy writer for Saturday Night Live and on The Simpsons before he got his own late-night chat show back in 1993. And in November, he started up his own podcast called Conan O'Brien Needs a Friend. The shtick being it's just him trying to get some real friends and also to pay off the mortgage on his beach house. Some of the guests I've enjoyed hearing him speak to are Will Ferrell, Adam Sandler, Nick Offerman and Megan Mullally. And here's part of his chat with the actor, jazz musician, potential buddy and renaissance man Jeff Goldblum, a star of films including Jurassic Park, Thor Ragnarok and The Fly. I know you play jazz. You're very passionate about jazz. You've made this uh, album, which is uh, incredible. Really, the yeah. musicianship and but what's what's interesting is it. It's no coincidence to me that you like jazz because I think when you speak, it's jazz. Yeah, yeah. Thanks. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's it's a, it's very. You speak very musically. And you bring things up and they occur to you and you follow them where they're going and then you dip back and then you find it different. It's, it's got a rhythm. Mm. Does this mm. make any sense at it all? It sure does, yeah. Uh, I was always naturally just uh, excited about jazz and rhythmical things and different harmonic things and improvisation particularly. Then I studied acting with Sanford Meisner, whose cornerstone of his technique is uh, this particular improvisation. Uh, and even though I like to do scripted material, do I do a David Mamet play or, you know, my Martin McDonough play and that you have to as you know be exactly on the words or a Wes Anderson movie who doesn't want you to replace and with the right etc then you find a kind of freedom and interesting nuance within that and it's a very beautiful creative experience but I do enjoy uh, doing Portlandia or Thor Ragnarok uh, on which we improvised a lot and I like improvisation I like and as you know these talk shows which interest me terrifically as a, early on I would go on a talk show and and uh, and sort of um, adopt the uh, cliche and conventional posture that, oh, I like the work to speak for itself. What am I doing on this show or that? Really, because I was frightened. Yeah. Uh, uh, that occurred to me. And the, and But I came to see it as an opportunity for something that I enjoy doing and something that could be very special, a little improvisation with somebody who's top-notch at it, uh, you know, playing ostensibly yourself, but in a short way. What's you know, I, I love everything about it. And I think it's if, there's, if you're in an environment where you feel safe, yeah. where you know that 
no, we can let this go and we can let this, uh, yeah. let's see what happens. Yeah. What do and, we got? Who, who cares? Today when fun. I was on the show, um, you know, it's Rachel, whom I really enjoyed. Uh, one of the, uh, the, she's one of the segment producers. The segment yeah. producing said, well, we talked for a little bit in our, on, our, on the telephone and now I've got some questions that he may ask you. I said, well, it's, uh, surprise me. And she, she could have said, well, no, here, you better, you know, get ready for this. That. She said, okay, well, that's, that's the best anyway. So I really didn't know anything that was going to occur when we went. And that's, uh, that's my kind of favorite thing. Your whole segment today was a cry for help. Uh, it was, my segment. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, uh, listen, we, uh, I, I think we should go out to dinner. Now, here's what I ask. It's a deal, yeah. Is it just you and I? Do we get the wives involved? I, I think I we mean, should do all, uh, you know, all variations of it. We should do yes, you and I. Then we should get the wives involved. Then maybe we you a, and I just first. Okie dokie. You know, it's because the why, you know, the wives they can get in the way. <laughs> what? You know, so maybe uh, just you and I. Okay. Would it be an Italian restaurant? What kind of cuisine are we talking? Well, about? we could pick the. Jeez, <laughs> I don't know what kind. Of, I, I love food, and I love all different uh, manner of uh, ambiance. What would you? What <laughs> What do, what do you imagine? I see you in a very stylish restaurant. I think it would really? be important that it be a really? kind of a cool look. You know, I think that, no, I'm not saying it shouldn't be stuffy. I don't see you yeah. going to a stuffy restaurant. I don't restaurant. like stuffy. I don't like fine food dining for no, that No, 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 I don't like much. that. Yeah. Right, right. I don't like lengthy. But you're also you know, a Pittsburgh guy. You might like a, a T-bone steak, uh, ribs. I, I like a steak. I go for the leaner cuts of meat these days. I like a nice filet, a petite yeah. filet, yeah, yeah. Uh, at uh, here or there. Uh, but I, I, I would do anything. But I like, you know, I did this little thing with Jonathan Gold before he passed away, speaking of which, yeah. uh, who was wonderful. Do you know him? Did you yeah. see that yeah, documentary, of City of Gold? Yes. It makes you appreciate Los Angeles in a whole different way through his oh, he's, eyes. He's brilliant. He was brilliant. He was brilliant. He said, you know, he made me think that, hey, this is a good place to raise kids. You can, if you drive around and do and expose them to the right things, this is a place of diversity yep. and uh, cultural interest. And food-wise, you go to these little mini malls that I used to think, ah, oh, ugly, ugly town, you know, but no, no, no. You can appreciate the indigenous family, authentic offerings that they have. And uh, so we could go to Jitlata. We could go to, you know, this Thai place that was on his list. I have yet to go down the hundred, his last hundred of the list, but you know, Moose and Franks. I like Moose and Franks. I went the you other know, day. You know, I, uh, I do this with a couple of friends of mine, Greg Daniels and Rodman Flender. We have a, a tradition where we find restaurants uh, Los Angeles restaurants, and the rule is they had to be in operation before we were born. Oh. And it took us to all these really interesting places downtown that have been around since the 40s or the 50s, yeah. or that sometimes the 20s, and you'll find out, oh, this is where the police detectives always eat, and there's sawdust on the floor, yeah. but if you get the, the, you know, the, the pot roast is great. Uh, and they, they're, they're kooky places that, that no one knows about. Sounds great. But I took my daughter uh, last weekend, I took my daughter Nev down to uh -huh. uh, downtown LA. We went to Little Tokyo uh -huh. and we found this little Korean barbecue place and it, it was like a little hole in the wall. And we went in fantastic, just oh, a yeah. great meal. We brought a friend of hers and she's very interested in... Uh, you know, Korean and Japanese culture. And so she wanted to, we went into all the little shops and LA is really amazing that way. Yeah. It's incredible. So I, well, maybe we'll do something like that, Let's you and do I. Korean barbecue. There's a place called Soup Bull Jeep. Do you know Soup Bull Jeep? Yeah. You go there and you cook things. They cook things right on this little grill there. I said, I got the squid and they, with a scissor, they come over with a big squid and they start cutting off some of the legs like oh, yeah. that. And you know, it was kind of great. Yeah, yeah. I like all that stuff. Let's go. Let's do some exploring. Because I have not gone out. And 
that's that's the one great thing about having kids. It must make you go, gee, let's. I need to expose them anyway to all sorts of things, and seeing it through their eyes yeah. is kind of delightful. Well, enough with them. You get plenty of time with them. Yeah. I see you and I going to a restaurant. Okay. No kids. Sounds uh, good. They sound delightful, but uh, my, mine, mine neither. They're not there either. It's just you and I. Okay. Uh, it's uh, it's a good idea. It's a, uh, night and when there's no work the next day. Musso and Frank's. I asked. I asked. And no work the next day. Really? Well, I'd like yeah. to just make sure that I have a clear schedule. <laughs> Anytime. Jeez. This is what? Sounding. I'm getting He's frightened. But uh, but uh, I'm intrigued. Strangely. But um, I asked on the day that I worked with Jonathan Gold, I said, what do you think about Musso Franks? He said, yes, that's good. It's good. It's still good. Yeah, go there. And of course, the atmosphere is very nice. But, you know, they have things on that menu, speaking of before we were born. Right. Like sherbet. You never see, you know, you see no. sorbet these days, but sherbet they have. You that know. was all over the, when we were kids. Sherbet, sherbet was yeah. what you ate all the time. Right. And then it just went away. Went away or, or became sorbet. I don't know yeah. what sorbet, is. yeah. Yeah, it's I like know. asbestos, one of those fun things we had when we were kids that we're not allowed to enjoy anymore. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Conan O'Brien Needs a Friend featuring Jeff Goldblum. And thanks to Matt Gawley and Adam Sachs for their help sharing that with you. That's about it from us for now. From me, Richard Scott, thanks for listening and enjoy the rest of your weekend. See you. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu.